Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. From the Desertato de Vampiris, Servants Sibilis, 1733. They come out of graves in the nighttime, rush upon people sleeping in their beds, suck out all their blood and destroy them. They attack men, women, and children, sparing neither age nor sex. The people attacked by them complain of suffocation and a great interception of spirit, after which they soon expire. I'm sure many of you are aware that, although known for its setting in Transylvania, the climactic chapters of Bram Stoker's gothic masterpiece Dracula take place in Victorian London. But did you know that approximately 80 years after the events of the novel, that a just as unbelievable and fascinating frenzy occurred on the streets of London? In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a series of bizarre events occurred in and around Highgate Cemetery in London. A number of sightings of phantoms and specters, particularly of a tall, dark-cloaked entity with burning eyes, led to speculation that London had acquired its very own vampire. But did any sort of vampire exist? And how could a late 20th century city be gripped by a panic more at home in the pages of a Victorian Gothic novel? Tonight it's time to pick up your steaks, grab your bulbs of garlic, and go off with me in search of the elusive Highgate vampire. Good evening, everyone. I hope that you're doing well wherever you are. Obviously, uh, in the lead up, lead off clip for the program, there's a little bit of a double entendre there for you. First and foremost, when I think of paranormal things going on in London, that song's one of the first and foremost things that comes to my mind. And then, of course, you had the Rougarou episode last week, which I hope you really enjoyed. I really enjoyed doing that one, as I say. So aside from that, folks, I hope you're settling into the spooky season. I hope that you're enjoying yourself. Wherever you are in this world, thank you for listening to my voice. I really hope that you enjoy what I'm putting out there. I myself, uh, I'm a bit old school, so I like watching those old nostalgic movies that I grew up with. And last night I sat down and watched uh, the original 1931 Frankenstein. And since I've got the time off, I'll watch some other classics like um, Bride of Frankenstein, The Wolfman, Dracula. There'll be several others, and then there'll be some newer films as well, but... I'm definitely trying to get into the Halloween spirit this year, and it's probably the first time in a long time that I've really felt, you know, like it's the season. With the year we've had, definitely, uh, you know, the season of horror fits right in in 2020. Aside from that, folks, I had a good birthday. Thank you for those who uh, wished, uh, gave me the well wishes on Instagram and Facebook and that. I do appreciate it. And you'll be happy to know that even on my birthday, I was working on this program I just want to, you know, continue to have some product ready for you, some good quality content, and that all takes research time and everything else. Now, with that being said, folks, as I say, if you're looking for ways to support the program, if you like what I do, if you'd like to support me, you can go out and just tell a friend, hey, there's this podcast, you know, this guy, this, uh, this eccentric uh, coot in uh, New Zealand, you know, he does this really cool show about the paranormal and other things. So you can suggest me to a friend. You can go and like and subscribe on iTunes or anywhere else where you may get, may get your program. Spotify is quite popular in this day and age. 
You can go on and join us on the Instagram page or the Facebook group. So I've got the Paranormal Sun Facebook group. I've got the Paranormal Sun on Instagram. And then also there's the Paranormal Sun website. And I tend to go on there and write blogs, give you a bit of an idea of some of the shows. Although the the last episode, I really didn't spend too much time going into Malta because I really wanted to just continue to focus on putting out some content for you. So aside from that, my friends, of course, we're, we've got uh, the news of the damned this evening. For those of you who are new to the program, the news of the damned is my homage to Charles Fort. Charles Fort was one of the real founding fathers of the paranormal as we know it today. He's one of the first people who went and collated a lot of these articles that he found in newspapers and magazines back in the early 1900s and then published them in books so that you, I, and anyone else could go and read into some of these phenomenon. He's one of the first people who really started joining the dots as far as, you know, caseload and, and really correlating a lot of the data for things like UFOs and sea serpents. So, you know, Charles Fort, he called any data that was excluded by science or ignored as damned data. Therefore, each week I try and give you the news of the damned, which is generally three articles, and I'll read them on the air and I'll give you links in the show notes. However, tonight I've got four, and again, uh, you know, I'll try and keep them halfway brief so, you know, it, it, we don't eat into the show's time too much, but you already know here on the Paranormal Sun, I don't wrap it up in a, in a bow just to get the show over and done with. So, here we go with our first article, and this is really the reason why we've got four, because I saw this article, and I couldn't go past it. Even though, folks, this has got really nothing to do with Halloween-type things, it's still something that is very near and dear to my heart. For those of you that have been listening to the program for a while, you'll know that I really enjoy uh, mysteries as far as lost treasures, histories, mysteries, things that have come and gone. Now, there are some treasures out there that... Uh, you know, it's a bit iffy if they exist. You know, you, you hear stories and, and we've heard things historically. But, you know, the reason why we're not sure or we're not sure of the size or the quantity is these stories might be four or five hundred years old or even thousands of years old. But this one is much closer and it definitely happened in my parents' lifetime. And this is about the Amber Room. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Amber Room was, it was basically, I'm just going to paraphrase, and if I get anything wrong, I do apologize, but Peter the Great, who was the Tsar of, Tsar of Russia in the 1700s, he was the first one in Russia, the first leader that really opened up to Western Europe. And the reason he did this was that he wanted to take Russia out of the state it was in and really get it up with the modern world. And Peter was a big proponent of Western technology, things like ships and things like that. And he was a true Renaissance man. He taught himself to do all kinds of things like building ships and everything else. He was really an anomaly for the day. He was an amazing leader. He wasn't, you know, hey, look, uh, like with anyone in history, take it with a grain of salt. I, I know that he did some bad things as well. But all I'm saying is that this man, you know, he didn't just rely on experts and sit on a throne and eat caviar and drink wine. You know, he actually got out there and got in amongst it. So, you know, a little bit of a, a different type of uh, historical royal. Well, anyway, back in the day, uh, as a gift to Peter the Great, and I can't remember who did it, they basically, uh, it was someone in the Baltic, because that's where most of the world's amber comes from. So amber is that golden-colored gemstone that's actually fossilized tree sap. Well, anyway, this amber was uh, they, they basically decorated a room in, in the uh, 
palace in St. Petersburg or uh, what's the other name? Um, Leningrad. Yeah, that's it. Anyway, they decorated this room for Peter out of amber, and it was a gift to the Russian state. Well, during World War II, the amber room went missing. So basically, all of the amber was packed up and moved, and, and um, you know, there's different theories one way or the other. If the Germans had it after the war, if the Nazis secreted it away, if the Russians had it hidden out and just blamed blamed the missing room on the Germans so, you know, they could basically get sympathy from the world, or if, you know, it was actually damaged or destroyed. So sorry, folks. Um, I actually had to do something I've never had to do before. I was reading the article on the Amber Room, and it was so discombobulated and poorly written, I had to go online and find another article. So hopefully this one's a little bit better. And this one is from TheGuardian.com, which is a UK publication. And this one is titled, Nazi shipwreck found off Poland may solve Amber Room mystery. And this one says, Polish divers locate Karlsruhe, which they hope holds treasure Nazis looted from Russia. Polish divers say they have found the wreck of a German Second World War ship that may solve a decades-old mystery about the whereabouts of the Amber Room, an ornate chamber that the Nazis looted from a Tsarist palace in Russia. Decorated with amber and gold, the room was part of the Catherine Palace near St. Petersburg. It was last seen in Konigsberg, then a Baltic port city in Germany, but now the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. The Karlsruhe steamer set sail from Konigsberg in 1945, with a heavy cargo before Soviet warplanes sank it off the coast of Poland. Divers from the from the Balt, Baltic Tech group say they have found the wreck of the Karlsruhe. We have been looking for the wreckage since last year when we realized there could be the most interesting, undiscovered story lying at the bottom of the Baltic Sea, Tomasz Stokru, one of the divers said in a statement. It is practically intact. In its holds, we discovered military vehicles, porcelain, and many crates with contents which are still unknown. The Karlsruhe had been taking part in Operation Hannibal, one of the largest sea evacuations in history, which helped more than a million German troops and civilians escape from East Prussia when the Soviets advanced towards the end of the Second World War. Documentation from the time suggests the vessel left Konigsberg in a hurry with a large cargo and about 1,083 people on board. All this, put together, stimulates the human imagination. Finding the German steamer in the crates with contents as yet unknown, resting on the bottom of the Baltic Sea, may be significant for the whole story, says Tomas Zwara, another one of the divers. The Amber Room was constructed in Prussia and then given to Peter the Great of Russia as a present in 1716. So I'm glad I didn't get that wrong. I, I kind of knew the story in my mind, but as is often the case, we misremember things, folks. The Nazis dismantled it and took it to Konigsberg, from where it disappeared during Allied bombing raids on the city. Many believe it was destroyed. Russian craftsmen have constructed a replica of the room in the Catherine Palace. So yeah, folks, look, that's another real interesting one. For all that 2020 has brought us, there have been some supposed discoveries of lost treasures like the Forest Fen treasure, and uh, I do find it quite interesting. So uh, keep, keep a listen out to the show, and if we get an update on that, I'll make sure to let you know if they confirm that it has been discovered. Now on to the next article here, and this one is a shout out to friends of the show in San Antonio area. So this one is definitely in the Halloween theme, and this one is titled, Are Ghosts Real? Check out the evidence, and you be the judge. Now, this one is from ksat.com, 
which is a San Antonio uh, television station, I believe. So it says, photos and videos show possible ghostly figures inside some local places. Byline San Antonio, do you believe in ghosts or are you a skeptic? Sometimes we need to experience something for ourselves to truly believe it. Here is some evidence from some reportedly haunted places in San Antonio and surrounding areas. Menger Hotel. This historic hotel was built right near the Alamo in 1859, and many guests and staff have claimed that it's haunted. KSAT viewer Felicia Powell shared the photo below with us. She captured the photo when she was visiting the Menger Hotel in 2013. It appears to show a child in red walking by with a, with a dark figure behind the child. But she says when she took the photo, nothing was there. And there's definitely a figure in this photo, folks. So, yeah. And, and again, you know, I encourage you to go over and look at the link and, you know, see for yourself. Magnolia Hotel. It's very near and dear to my heart. This Seguin Hotel was built in around 1840. It's said to be haunted by several different spirits. Many people have visited and captured photos of unexplained ghostly figures. The owners of the place now have it open for overnight stays, if you dare. Yeah, uh, as the girls over at the um, the Quite Unusual podcast, uh, I would say I'd err on the side of Noel versus Nicole. I really don't want to stay somewhere and encounter a spirit like that. It's bad enough when you encounter them at home. And you will hear in a few weeks, you'll hear my story of my own ghostly encounters. But I definitely wouldn't want to encounter it in an old, old hotel like that. Faust Hotel. This new Bronzefels Hotel is another reportedly haunted place. Staff said that a lot of paranormal activity has been reported on the second floor towards the end of the hallway near rooms 215 and 217. Children can be heard playing in the middle of the night when the guest list shows no children staying on the floor. During an in investigation in 2016, members of the San Antonio Paranormal Investigations team caught this photo of a child's hand when the door at the time was empty. Sorry, the floor was empty. And yeah, folks, it definitely looks like a hand. Institute of Texan Cultures. Employees of this museum have experienced things they can't explain and have captured some of the phenomena on camera. Security cameras captured something moving inside the gift shop at the museum when it was closed. What do you think? And there's an embedded video here, folks. Uh, and this was written by Erica Hernandez. I just want to make sure that I give her the credit for that. I'm just going to very quickly play this here video and see if there's anything to it, you know, as far as I'm concerned. It's just being a bit slow to load. Well, anyway, um, to Adriana and Nico in Texas, I definitely hope, oh, yeah, there's something in this video. I don't know what it is. It looks to be transparent. And the best way to describe it would be almost like a smudge on the camera moving across the video frame. But anyway, quite in, in, interesting. So again, if you'd like to know more about that, if you want to see the, the photos and that, you can just follow the link in the show notes, go over there and have a look for yourself. And as always here, folks, on the Paranormal Sun, I do my best to present things like this and allow you to make up your own mind and you come to your own conclusions. So by all means, go over there, follow the link, go over to the website and have a look at the photos, see what you think. But like I say, there'll be a bit more stories like this this month simply because it is Halloween. Now, on to the next article here. And for those of you who listened to the Rigaroo episode, you would have heard me talk about Lon Strickler over at Phantoms and Monsters. So he's got an excellent site for, you know, keeping track of a lot of these sightings that people have. 
they'll send in their sighting and Lon will post it up. So as of this recording, it is on the front page of Phantoms and Monsters, but I'll give you the byline in case you want to look it up. And it's titled, Positive Bigfoot Contact Along Southern Indiana Creek. A young woman in southern Indiana was trapping wildlife in order to supplement her finances. Her positive experiences with a presumed Bigfoot were the result of her activity. Now it says, the following account was recently forwarded to me. So that being Lon Strickler, not to JT. So it says, about 20 years ago, after I graduated high school here in the southern part of Indiana, I used to run traps to make extra money in the winter. Since I was pregnant with my daughter, any sort of ec extra income was necessary. Boy, I've been there, folks. <laughs> my father had always told me about the creek I trapped in as being quite strange. We would always walk the creek to collect arrowheads and look for other Shawnee relics. So for those of you who don't know, especially the international listeners, the Shawnee are an Indian tribe from that area. So he would tell me stories about the Shawnee Native American tribe and their history and folklore. It was a very special spot for us. So when I began trapping, my father would tell me to have respect for the wildlife. Don't litter, kill humanely, and don't kill what doesn't need to be killed. Fully agree, that's how I grew up. So I built a great deal of appreciation to life, which led to my career in conservation. The only reason I state these things is to build context as to why I did what I did. About once a week, while walking up the creek, I would hear whistling, like a human, but in random patterns. I would also recognize an odor that was sulfuric and similar to rotten eggs. My dad told me most likely a Bigfoot. So my dad told me this was most likely a Bigfoot. Sorry, folks. Again, this is someone's written letter, so it's not necessarily cohesive. Sightings had occurred as long as he could remember in our area of the Bigfoot from her dad. The one time I was scanning down the tree lines with my binoculars to check to see if I had any coyotes and foxes in my traps to save me the walking time, I saw a fairly medium-sized tree swaying dramatically a little past the tree line. So I headed over there with my 22. Now, for those of you, again, folks who don't know much about, you know, aren't from the country, don't know a lot about guns, a 22 is not a very strong rifle. You would mainly use that to shoot things like rabbits and maybe possums, things like that. But it's definitely... It could kill you if it hit you in the right spot, but it's more going to be an annoyance for a human. So it said, I headed over there with my 22, hoping to sneak up on a bobcat or any animal that was medium-sized that my 22 could kill with a headshot. So again, you know, she's basically backing up what I've just said. About three quarters of the way to the tree line, the swaying stopped, and I didn't see anything. But at least two of whatever it was began whistling and whooping further back in the forest. I continued to head up the creek, and it's always stayed somewhat behind me at a distance, but never left. So these sounds. That was interesting. Then one day, sadly, an oil fracking company purchased most of the land, but they still gave me permission to trap. They had a few accidents where the water got so damn nasty it killed just about everything. So she means that they spilled stuff in the creek bed and, you know, this stuff from the fracking killed them. It broke my heart to see beavers, muskrats, and some raccoons floating down the creek every time I went. But after they had installed their rigs and cleared some forest, things got a little hostile. One day while running traps, almost all of my traps had been ruined, bent, beaten, and broken. And the remaining animals I had caught were either stolen, ripped from the trap with the foot or legs still attached. I even found a coyote that had been messed up bad. 
fur torn, broken lower jaw, and head beaten in. I felt like this was in retaliation to what the oil company had done. For a few months afterwards, I would go to the store twice a week and buy a variety of apples, pears, and a mixture of meat from carcasses I had skinned. I'd put it in a basket and leave it in the forest, hoping whatever it was would get it before anything else. Sometimes the basket would disappear, but always in two days everything was gone. One day I believe it left me a present in return. Next to where I dropped off the basket, there was about 100 plus small sticks stacked very neatly, about 20 acorns, and a deer antler. It made me feel happy. I do hope that I did help this creature out in its very sad moment of life, because I never physically saw it or any tracks in the creek bed. But all of my occurrences happened in the woods along the creek, so I really don't know. So still to this day, 20 years later, I think of it time to time, and I don't see a reason people should be afraid of them. It was a sad but positive two winter seasons with it. Even if it was an animal, I didn't recognize, I hoped it helped. SB. So folks, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to me. Again, Bigfoot is something that's near and dear to my heart simply because I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest and it's probably the most famous thing to come out of the Pacific Northwest aside from D.B. Cooper. So I've heard lots of these stories in the past about Bigfoot positive interactions and, you know, some of the tribes in the northern U.S. and into Canada, First Nation tribes up there in Canada, they have said that, you know, they used to kind of trade with Bigfoot, uh, with Sasquatch, not necessarily in a one-on-one term, but, you know, leave something out there and they would find something else in return. So it is quite interesting. And again, you know, as always, this is someone's story. So I don't know if it's real or made up, but again, you be the judge. Now on to the fourth and final one here for you tonight, folks. And I hope that you do find a bit of value in this as well. And this one is also a bit of an ongoing thing. So one of the most famous cryptids in the world, I'm sure you're well aware of, is the Loch Ness Monster. And I've already read to you a few instances, a few sightings this year in 2020 on the program. And this is another one from over at coasttocoastam.com. And uh, so this one is titled Watch, Dog Walker Films Nessie. And this is by Tim Banal. A couple walking their dog along the shore of Loch Ness captured video of an anomalous object emerging from the water that could be the site's famed monster, but not everyone is convinced that it is a creature. The curious sighting reportedly took place last weekend when Trevor and Sarah Ross visited the iconic location with their golden retriever Molly. While casually strolling along a beach, they noticed an odd shape out on the water. A frequent visitor to Loch Ness, Trevor, Trevor marveled at i never seen anything like that before in, in the water moving. While the couple was watching the oddity, Molly began barking frantically, which led to the couple deciding to leave the area since the dog seemed spooked by the strange scene. However, before they departed, Trevor was able to film the anomaly with his cell phone. In the video, a dark slender object can be sticking out of the water, going back under, and then popping up again. As for what the weird thing in the water was, Trevor conceded that it might have been a log. Though, as a self-described believer in Nessie, one imagines that he probably hopes that it was the legendary cryptid. Unfortunately for him, the consensus among skeptical observers who have seen the video is that his first guess is likely correct and that he probably filmed a log log Ness monster rather than a genuine creature. What's your take on the footage? So again, folks, there's, you know, I'll have a link in the show notes. I'm just going to very quickly watch this video. It's only a 14 second clip. So just give you a little bit of feedback as I'm watching it. Uh, 
And yeah, folks, I would say to me, it's probably at least a 50-50 that it's a log, just looking at the way it reacts. It's kind of bobbing up and down in the water. Um, but again, as always, you know, we reserve judgment and who knows. Uh, one of the biggest theories about the Loch Ness Monster is that it's a giant eel and this would be shaped like an eel's head. Anyway, um, it's interesting nonetheless, and I'll li leave a link over there in the show notes for you. Well, folks, as always, I hope that you've really enjoyed the news of the damned for this uh, evening. Again, if there's ever an article, something you'd like me to cover over, something you'd like me to read on the air, feel free to just drop me a, a note. You know, you can send me an email, send me an instant message on the Facebook group or over at Instagram. And also, if you'd like to support the show further, you can, of course, go on to the paranormalsun.com and drop a few coins in my box over there on the PayPal link, or you can go and support the show through Patreon. So it's completely up to you folks. I do appreciate everything anyone does to help support the show. And with that, now we are going to get into the fascinating case of a modern vampire. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and, well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they Ah, Dracula. Yes, the most famous of all vampires. And to this day, the 1931 film is probably what springs to most people's minds when they think of Dracula and vampires. But vampires, that's a story that belongs in the past, right? Although media like Twilight and True Blood may keep it in the public's mind, there are no modern instances of anything more, right? Right? On the 24th of November, 1972, in the UK, a young Staffordshire police constable, 22-year-old John Pye, was called to number three of the villas, a gloomy boarding house on the southwest side of Stoke-on-Trent. The landlady and several of her tenants had become concerned about the well-being of one of the lodgers, middle-aged Polish pottery worker Demetrius Mayakura, who had not been seen for several days. Pye forced open the door of the tiny first-room floor and switched on his, his torch or flashlight and found himself stepping into what appeared to be a scene out of a nightmare. Mayakura, aged 56, who had lived in England for the previous 25 years since the end of World War II, was lying dead under the blankets on his small single bed. There appeared to be no obvious cause of death, and initially it seemed as though the potter had simply died in his sleep. The pole had apparently been so frightened of electricity that he had removed the light bulb from the ceiling fixture with the result being that P.C. Pye was forced to carry out his initial examination by torchlight. His landlady, Mrs. Rodzowitz, told the policeman that Mayakura had also been terrified of vampires, and as he looked around the shadowy room, it became clear that the dead man had turned his cramped bedroom into a veritable fortress against them. Crosses and crucifixes had been hung on the walls. Salt was scattered over the furniture and the bedclothes, while two small bags of salt were found on the bed itself one between Mayakura's legs, the other on the pillow next to his head. Opening the window, P.C. Pye saw 
on a flat roof close to the window sill, an inverted washing bowl over which was a bizarre cake of human excrement mixed with garlic, as though the frightened man had been intent on warding off some form of invasion from the outside. An inquest was opened into Mayakura's death, and a subsequent post-mortem revealed that his death had been due to asphyxiation. What at first appeared to be part of a pickled onion was found lodged in his throat, but John Pye, who had carried out research into vampirism at the local library, told the coroner that the salt and garlic were traditional Eastern European repellents against vampire attacks. When the pickled onion was re-examined by the pathologist at the coroner's request, it was found to be, in fact, a clove of garlic. The Highgate Cemetery has been dubbed the creepiest cemetery in London. The cemetery in North London was the it place for the resting souls of wealthy Londoners in the 18th century. There are approximately 170,000 people buried in 53,000 graves across Highgrave's West Cemetery and the East Cemetery. The mansion estate upon which the 1830 cemetery was built was reputed to be haunted for many years prior to the cemetery opening in 1839. According to local sources, it seems that the land was purchased advantageously as the house, having a reputation for being haunted, had stood empty for many years. Highgate's paranormal activities date back to at least as early as 1808, and one of the cemetery's most popular ghosts is known to sport a top hat. The cemetery, officially called the Cemetery of St. James, was consecrated by the Bishop of London in 1839, four days before Queen Victoria's 20th birthday. The graveyard is an impressive landscape of intricate tombstones, Gothic busts battling unruly ivy, and an A-list guestbook of permanent residents including German philosopher Karl Marx and novelist George Eliot. By the end of the Second World War, the cemetery was in need of some serious TLC. It was run down, making it a perfect filming location for horror movies, such as From Beyond the Grave and Taste the Blood of Dracula in the early 1970s. Graffiti was scrawled across headstones, vandals had pulled doors off of vaults, cracks and holes in tombs offered glimpses of coffins, and in some cases, even desiccated bodies. But residents were experiencing a horror story of their own. Sightings of a sinister dark figure with blood-red eyes who appeared to glide above the ground started cropping up in local newspapers. Many felt there was no other plausible explanation. It must be a vampire. One of the sightings was recounted in a letter written by young Wicca, or a pagan witchcraft enthusiast, David Ferrant, and published in the Hampstead and Highgate Express. Ferrant claimed that he had seen a tall gray figure floating in the cemetery on Christmas Eve in 1969. As president of the Psychic and Occult Society, it would be no surprise if he came to paranormal conclusions. Shortly after Ferrant's letter was published, a second man, Sean Manchester, was interviewed by the same newspaper for an article titled, Does a Vampire Walk in Highgate? Now, my friends, I'm going to take you through the fascinating events that gripped London for over five years and are known to this day as the Highgate Cemetery Vampire Sightings. In 1967, two adolescent girls walking home along nearby Swains Lane claimed to have witnessed the dead rising from their graves by the cemetery's north gate. Another teenager had been awoken one night with something cold and clinging on her hand, which left prominent marks the next morning while reports circulated of a tall man in a hat walking in the area before melting through the cemetery's walls. Another incident, some weeks later, involved a couple 
who were also walking down Swain's Lane. The lady recorded glimpsing something hideous hovering behind the gate's iron railings. Her fiancé also saw it, and both stood frozen, staring at it for what seemed like several minutes. Its face bore an expression of absolute horror. Chillingly, on the night of Halloween, 1968, an act of desecration was discovered in nearby Tottenham Park Cemetery. Flowers had been taken from graves and arranged in circles, with arrows pointing to a new grave, which was uncovered. A stake had been driven through the coffin lid and into the heart of the corpse. The newspaper expressed disbelief and bewilderment at this act of desecration. Some readers, however, felt less bewildered, believing that this crime may somehow be linked to vampires. In late 1969, Ferrant claimed that he spoke to two people who had sightings, an old lady who'd been out walking her dog and a middle-aged accountant who told similar stories about what they'd seen in the cemetery. The old lady had been walking down Swain's Lane, a road running through the graveyard, when she saw a tall, dark figure with glaring eyes that seemed to be floating towards her. She felt the air turn icy cold. The accountant had gotten lost in the vast cemetery. A bell started to clang, and he walked towards the sound, hoping it might guide him out of the necropolis. Instead, as the bell tolled, he became aware of something behind him and noticed the temperature plummeting. He turned around to see a tall, dark figure that stared at him intensely before it vanished. Intrigued, Ferrant decided to investigate by spending a night in the graveyard. Ferrant said, At first I suspected it might just be an animal or someone dressed up or messing about, because all these stories about vampires were in the news. But around midnight, I caught sight of a figure, about seven feet tall, that appeared to be floating just above the ground. I saw its face and two points of intense red light. The area turned icy cold as if I'd stepped into a refrigerator. The figure seemed to be draining me of energy, and I felt I was losing control of my normal faculties. It felt like a vivid dream, like I wanted to wake up, but I couldn't. Realizing I was under intense psychic attack, I repeated mentally a Kabbalistic incantation used to repel evil forces. It disappeared, but I decided the reports were true. The situation had turned nastier by the early months of 1970, as several animals were found dead, their bodies drained of blood, and with what appeared to be lacerations to their throats. On the 6th of February that same year, a local man and self-proclaimed mag magician, as I've spoken of before, David Ferrant, wrote a letter to the Hampstead and Highgate Express, the papers also known as the Ham and High for short that he had recently glimpsed a gray figure he was certain was supernatural and asking if anyone else had seen anything similar. A number of people responded, saying that they had glimpsed apparitions in Highgate Cemetery and on Swain's Lane. These phantoms, though, were of a variety of descriptions, including a tall man wearing a hat, a ghostly cyclist, a lady dressed in white, a face grimacing through the bars of a gate, a person wading into a pond, and a pale gliding entity. There were also reports of the sounds of bells and voices calling. There was little coherence in the types of specters people claimed to have seen. But another local man with an interest in the supernatural, Sean Manchester, was intrigued by what he had read, and Manchester would soon make public his ideas about what the apparition in the graveyard may be. Little did anyone know at the time this would be the beginning of a nearly 50-year saga a public declaration and one-upsmanship, and general hostility between the two men. 
Manchester claimed an even more startling paranormal insight than Ferrant. Backed up by a career as both a self-proclaimed exorcist, vampire hunter, and bishop of the mysterious Old Catholic Church. Based on the available evidence and testimonies, Sean Manchester was certain. It became appallingly apparent, he later wrote, that the people of Highgate were not witnessing a harmless earthbound apparition, but a vampire. Though Ferrant had never claimed the dark figure he'd encountered was a vampire, Sean Manchester had little doubt that a genuine Nosferatu was stalking suburban North London. Manchester contacted the Hammond High, and on the 27th of February, 1970, the newspaper published an interview entitled, Does a Wampir Walk in Highgate? in which Manchester outlined a theory to explain the monster's presence. Manchester alleged that a king vampire of the undead was buried in the graveyard. This vampire, who in life had been an aristocrat and practitioner of black magic in medieval Romania, had been transported to England in a coffin by his followers in the early 18th century. The vampire had been interred on the site that would later become the Highgate Cemetery, and his followers had also purchased a house for him in London's fashionable West End. The reason for the Highgate vampire's reappearance, Manchester said, was that rituals recently carried out by Satanists in the cemetery had reawakened this evil presence. His body, Mr. Manchester claimed, had been resurrected by a modern Satanist and his demonic form now stalked the graveyard at night. In 1970, Manchester published The Highgate Vampire. Ferrant came back with his publication of Beyond the Highgate Vampire. Manchester claimed to have spoken to local people who'd experienced vampiric activity. A schoolgirl, Elizabeth Wuljaya, had seen the vampire when walking down Swain's Lane. Wuljaya began having nightmares in which something evil tried to come into her bedroom. Eventually, two wounds appeared on her neck, and she started to display symptoms of anemia. Manchester and Elizabeth's boyfriend filled her room with garlic, crucifixes, and holy water, and her condition soon improved. Manchester spoke to another young woman, called Jacqueline, who said she'd awoken in the night to find something cold clutching her hand. The next morning, she noticed deep tears in the flesh where she'd tried to force her hand free. Jacqueline and her younger brother soon developed a fascination that kept drawing them to the more dilapidated western side of Highgate Cemetery, where Manchester suspected the vampiric infection had occurred. Manchester claimed that, after details about the Highgate vampire became public, more people contacted him, all describing a similar dark, tall being with blazing eyes. Another interesting case is that of the man who was hypnotized by something in the cemetery. He had gone into the cemetery one evening to look around, and as the light began to rapidly fade, he decided to leave, but became hopelessly lost. Not being a superstitious person, he walked calmly around, looking for the gate, when suddenly he became aware of something behind him. Swinging around, he became hypnotized with fear at the tall, dark figure of the vampire confronting him. So great was the intensity of his fear that he stood motionless for several minutes after the vampire vanished. He later recalled that it was almost as if he had been paralyzed with fear by some force. Like Manchester, Ferrant felt such activities might have woken a long-dominant presence. Ferrant claimed his research showed that Although the dark figure had been glimpsed for many years before the rash of sightings in the 60s and 70s, people had seen a similar entity in the Victorian epoch. According to Manchester, the police were well aware of black magic practices going on in the cemetery. 
It's worth pointing out that Ferrant himself was a member of a group that used the cemetery for rituals, though but pagan, pagan Wicca ones rather than anything satanic. Ferrant stated that his group never interfered with the graves or bodies, but as many of their rituals had been conducted outdoors, they used the cemetery because it was a secluded, open space. The late 60s and early 70s saw a revival of interest in all aspects of mysticism and the occult, including paganism, Eastern mysticism, Satanism, witchcraft, and the teachers of, teachings of Aleister Crowley, the self-professed wickedest man in the world, as well as the emergence of a number of less conventional Christian sects. It's clear that an overgrown and secluded place like Highgate Cemetery could offer those engaged in the more outlandish aspects of this resurgence a suitably atmospheric scene to carry out their ceremonies. Reports soon came from Highgate of tombs being broken into, graves and bodies were desecrated, and black magic rituals allegedly performed. Vampire hunters claimed to have broken open coffins and plunged stakes into and even burnt the corpses of the undead. Newspapers obsessed over these strange occurrences. TV programs were made about a supposed nest of vampires in the Highgate Cemetery, and those promising to root out the ancient evil were interviewed. The Ham and High Express continued to follow the vampire story, re-interviewing Ferrant and Manchester several times over the next few months. In an article published on the 6th of March, 1970, Ferrant said he'd found dead foxes in the cemetery, but couldn't work out how they'd died. Manchester claimed he'd also seen the foxes, and suggested that the vampire may have been using them as a food source. Soon it was alleged the animals had been found drained of blood with their throats ripped open. As interest in the Highgate vampire mounted, a rivalry grew up between Ferrant and Manchester, with each belittling the other's skills as an exorcist, and each stating that he would be the one to expel the spectre lurking in Highgate. Reports of the Highgate vampire commotion soon reached the national and even international media. Articles appeared in the national press, Television programs were made by both ITV and the BBC, and even the international news agency Reuters featured the case. Both Manchester and Ferrant declared they would destroy the evil figure. They both claimed were stalking the Highgate Cemetery, although Ferrant consistently scoffed at any notion of a real vampire existing. Now, my friends, it's time to talk about the point at which this case hit its climax. I wish I was making some of this up, but unbelievably, folks, Everything that I'm about to read to you actually happened. So the Friday the 13th vampire hunt, and again folks, no I'm not kidding. The situation reached fever pitch on the evening of Friday the 13th, March 1970. A program aired on ITV featuring Ferrant, Manchester, and others claiming to have seen supernatural figures around Highgate. Friday the 13th is an ominous day according to British superstition, and this date is often chosen to broadcast programs dealing with the occult. The program even included live outside reporting from Highgate Cemetery. Within two hours of the program being shown, hundreds of would-be vampire hunters began arriving in Highgate. They surged over the lock gates and walls of the necropolis, despite the efforts of local police officers to stop them. The vampire hunters, many armed with weapons, searched frantically among the Victorian tombs. Those interviewed at the scene appeared to genuinely believe in the vampire, saying that they were determined to find the monster and put an end to its diabolical actions. The mob caught no vampires that night, though some insisted they'd glimpse the tall, dark figure. The anxiety and terror certainly seemed real. 
Manchester would later say the Highgate Vampire Fuhrer provoked panic and fear and disbelief on a scale which one might anticipate if an alien had landed from outer space. The collective imagination had no defense against what we unearthed back in the late 60s in Highgate. Ferrant, meanwhile, still unconvinced the spooky presence was a Nosferatu, complained bitterly that media hysteria and local superstition had turned the Highgate entity into a vampire. On that Friday the 13th, as the amateur vampire hunters swarmed over the cemetery, Manchester and some companions made their way to the entrance of one particular catacomb. Manchester had previously been led there by a sleepwalking girl who claimed to have been bothered by the Highgate vampire and had been exhibiting symptoms similar to Elizabeth's. Unable to open the door, the group used a rope to climb down into the catacomb through a window. They found themselves in a vault with several coffins, one of which was a sinister-looking casket made of nearly black wood, and it didn't seem to fit in with the others. Manchester and his companions performed an exorcism with holy water and garlic and sprinkled salt around the catacomb. A few months later, on Lamas Day, the 1st of August, the charred, decapitated remains of a century-old woman were found near the catacomb. The police suspected this mutilated corpse had been used in a black magic ritual. After this, both Ferrant and Manchester seemed to become more active. Ferrant was apprehended by the police in the churchyard next to the cemetery one night, clutching a crucifix and a wooden stake. Ferrant was arrested, but the case against him collapsed when it came to court. He later sued the News of the World for their in intimation that he was a would-be cat killer. And because a lawsuit is much too worldly for the likes of a magician, he also posted out voodoo dolls with pins stuck in the heads to an RSPCA inspector and others who had called for his prosecution, just for good measure. Manchester and his followers were shortly after led to a different family vault by a female psychic helper. After forcing open the doors, they found the black coffin similar to the one they'd seen in the catacombs. Manchester suspected it had been moved by black magic devotees. He levered open the lid, and he later stated, It was only when we discovered, in the putrid chamber of that tomb in August 1970, what we did and looked upon the horrific continence of what was inside, that we had absolute confirmation of what we were dealing with. Manchester wanted to drive a stake through the body, but a member of his entourage persuaded him not to, as interfering with remains was a crime in England. Instead, the group performed a ritual that used seven crucifixes, four white candles, and seven cups of holy water, and a ceremony carried out by four men and a woman to banish the spirit of evil or evil presence using the Latin formula. News of the spoken exorcism did indeed bring a sigh of relief to many living in the area. Manchester says the cemetery officials then bricked up the vault with a crucifix and holy water left inside. But Manchester reflected the vault didn't remain bricked up for long. Ferrant and his group were also making efforts to deal with the strange presence. They decided to try to communicate with the entity and discover its purpose. In Highgate Cemetery, they conducted rituals using two circles, incense, candles, and a medium. The first time they tried this, the press interrupted them. A year later, according to Ferrant, another attempt saw the entity clasping the medium by the throat. We had to break the circle. The area was then turned chillingly cold. The medium felt that she was being enveloped by darkness. She felt something was trying to strangle her. Ferrant was now convinced that the entity was malignant. 
After hearing of incidents in which a sinister force had pushed people over in Swain's Lane, he did more research. Ferrant came up with the theory that the being wasn't a vampire at all, but an evil presence that traveled along a ley line. This ley line began at the Columbarium, a part of the cemetery where the urns are kept, and ran across Highgate through two old public houses, Highgate Wood and a block of flats built over a nunnery. Ferrant claimed he found evidence of disturbing supernatural activity in all of these places. Some people he spoke to said they'd glimpsed a tall, dark figure. A manager in one of the pubs, apparently, saw a sight so horrific it turned his hair white and one of the flats built over the nunnery had to be exorcised. Despite the ceremony that Manchester and his colleagues conducted in the tomb, any relief was short-lived. Manchester said, strange occurrences failed to cease and more horrifying incidents ended any hope that we'd quietened the disturbance with a mere spoken exorcism rite. Further vampiric outrages were to follow. In 1971, several years after the many publicized vampire sightings, a young girl claimed she was actually attacked by the vampire in the lane outside the cemetery. She was returning home in the early hours of the morning when she was suddenly thrown to the ground with tremendous force by a tall black figure with a deathly white face. At that moment, a car stopped to help her, and the vampire vanished in the glare of the headlamps. She was taken to the police station in a state of shock, luckily only suffering abrasions to her arms and legs. The police immediately made a thorough search of the area, but could offer no explanation to the incident. More mysterious still was the fact that where the vampire had vanished, the road was lined by 12-foot tall walls. About three years later, Manchester claims he and his associates discovered the same ominous black casket in the cellars of an abandoned and suitably gothic mansion on the borders of Highgate and Crouch End. Manchester suspected the coffin had been moved there to avoid all the attention the media and enthusiastic vampire hunters had focused on Highgate Cemetery. Manchester's group drugged the coffin out of the basement, up the stairs, and into the grounds of the mansion. Manchester said, Dawn was about to break, starting to send spears of bright illumination onto the macabre spectacle below. When the lid was removed, we beheld the same thing we'd seen in August 1970. This was now the early part of 1974. Our quarry this time looked even more exaggerated, even more distorted than I remembered it. Far worse than even that time in the Highgate Vault. Its burning fierce eyes, under the many furrowed brow, were staring. Yellow at the edges, with blood-red centers, unlike anything imaginable. The mouth was set in a cruel expression, the lips drawn back. Manchester drove a stake into the Highgate Vampire. With a mighty blow, a sharpened shaft of wood impaled the creature's heart. We witnessed the body shell cave in and quickly turn filthy brown, and that itself soon became a sluggish flow of inhuman slime and viscera in the bottom of the casket. As Manchester believed that cremation is recommended as the ultimate deterrent and, and preventative to the vampire's nightly wanderings, he and his followers then burned the coffin and what was left of the body. This took several hours, after which all that remained was a great scorch mark and some bones that needed to be ground down and cast to the four corners of four winds of the earth. Following this exhaustive process, Manchester pronounced the Highgate Cemetery is purged. So that should be the end of it, right folks? Manchester staked the vampire, and that's the end of it. Well, just like in Hollywood, wouldn't make a very good uh, episode if that was the end of it, now would it? So now we're going to talk about the aftermath.
The anxiety around the Highgate vampire was part of a growing obsession of, with such creatures in British society. A number of TV programs and horror movies had focused on vampires. One such film, the Hammer Horror production Taste the Blood of Dracula, had actually been shot in Highgate Cemetery only a year before the Highgate vampire incidents began. Manchester's claims to have destroyed the Highgate vampire did little to end the feud between him and Ferrant. There had even been rumors that the two would meet in a magician's duel on Parliament Hill on Friday the 13th of April, 1973. In a conclusion straight out of Harry Potter, the two decided to hold a duel to decide once and for all which of the two was the greater magician and paranormalist. Flyers started to appear in London Underground Station advertising this magician's duel. And again, it was scheduled for Friday the 13th in Hampstead. Rumors swirled around the media that the two were planning to sacrifice a cat in the presence of naked virgins. When a local man's beloved pet failed to return home one day, Mr. Ferrant was villainized by the RSPCA and the media for allegedly having beheaded the animal as part of a pagan ritual. Much to the chagrin of the public, tempers cooled down and the duel never took place. In 1974, Ferrant was jailed after being convicted of interfering with remains and vandalizing memorials in Highgate Cemetery. Ferrant assessed that the damage had been caused by Satanists rather than him. He was sentenced to five years behind bars. He only served three. Both Ferrant's imprisonment and the rumored duel served to keep the Highgate vampire in the public mind for several years. In 1980, reports of dead animals found drained of blood began to appear in Finchley. Manchester believed that a vampire created by the bite of the Highgate vampire was the cause. He contacted many of the people who he had met in 1970 and eventually targeted a woman he called Lucia as the culprit. He discovered that Lucia had died and been buried in the Great Northern London Cemetery, and he had dreams in which she came to him. One autumn evening in 1982, Manchester entered the cemetery. Arriving at the cemetery, Manchester saw a spider-like creature about the size of a cat. He staked it and felt sure he'd put an end to the pollution of the Highgate vampire for good. As dawn approached, it metamorphosed into Louisa. She had now only truly died. He returned her remains to her grave. Meanwhile, in the 1978 general election, David Ferrant ran in Hornsey, as the sole candidate for his own Wicca Workers Party on a platform of free sex and nudity, restoring the Wiccan creed, outlawing communism, establishing state brothels, restoring true power to the monarchy, and leaving the EU common market. Ferrant's brand of electoral paganism may have been unsuccessful, but it says something of an era in which London could play home to eccentrics and outliers, as well as a time that lent itself to a spectacularly theatrical supernatural yarn. The quarrel between Ferrant and Manchester dragged on for decades, with each claiming to be an expert exorcist while dismissing the other's abilities. Public interest and amusement in the story ebbed and flowed, but one thing remained constant, the levels of animosity between the two men who claimed to own the narrative around the Highgate vampire. Mr. Manchester wrote several blog posts aimed at vilifying his rival, describing him as suffering from narcissistic personality disorders and often illustrating his blogs with paintings of Ferrant as a demon. Both men spent many years investigating paranormal phenomena. Both produced books, articles, and websites, and gave many interviews about the Highgate vampire. The feud took a succession of twists and turns, 
through a steady stream of petty and often surreal vindictiveness. The two men and their followers frequently sparred on social media. David Ferrant died age 73 in April of 2019, but Manchester still works as an exorcist and bishop in the British Old Catholic Church, a conservative sect that broke away from Roman Catholicism. After slaying the Highgate vampire, Manchester maintains he has destroyed dozens of other bloodsuckers. While Ferrant had presided over the British Psychic and Occult Society, Manchester founded the British Occult Society. When Manchester published his sensational book, The Highgate Vampire, Ferrant countered with Beyond the Highgate Vampire. When Ferrant was jailed for grave desecration in 1974, charges he has always denied, though he admitted sending voodoo effigies to two police officers, Manchester rarely missed a chance to call him a convicted felon in one of his many blogs. Ferrant wrote again to the Ham and High in 2006 in order to deny hosting a Halloween orgy at an undisclosed Barnett location. He explained in his letter, I have been accused over the years of being many things by the media and others, including being a Satanist, a black witch, a sex-mad witch, ad infinitum. I would just like to point out that I am none of these things. According to the article, David said reports of an orgy were made wide of the mark. It was part of a Wicca ceremony where two people made love under a satin sheet watched by the rest of us. Now I've got a special shout out here to uh, one of the show's biggest supporters. So to Harry, you'll really like this, uh, this segment. So now according to his wife, David Ferrant was fonder of pythons than he was of ghouls, even befriending one. She said Graham Chapman was very good friends with him. They felt quite a bond, both having been through the press a bit. They'd share a whiskey now and then. So folks, for those of you who don't know, Monty Python is obviously a British comedy group from the 70s, 60s and 70s especially. And Harry is a big listener, has always been a big fan of Monty Python, as have I. So I did find this quite interesting that, uh, you know, even in this story, You've, you find uh, the likes of John Cleese and Eric Idle and Graham Chapman involved. According to a statement issued in 2013, Manchester retired from public life that year to devote himself to creative contemplation, though it doesn't appear to have stopped him guarding his relationship to the Highgate vampire any less fiercely. To try to make sense of the tale requires making sense of the area and time in which it took place. Highgate is just one of London's many synthetic villages, but its history is unusually stuffed with the strange and macabre, including the specter of the ghostly chicken, a story from the 17th century involving Sir Francis Bacon and the ghost of a chicken buried in the snow near Pond Square. But has the Highgate vampire, or whatever it was, really been laid to rest? Ferrant thought not, and ominously, a number of sightings of tall, dark figures with burning eyes have occurred from the 1990s up until the present day. One witness, a Declan Walsh, claimed to have glimpsed the spook in 1991. He said, He was very tall, well over six feet in height, and very thin. He wore a long black cape-like cloak and a top hat. His dress looked Victorian in style, and he appeared all in black. He also appeared to glide, and there was no sound. The ground was littered with leaves, yet I heard no sound from him. Another witness watched the figure float from Swain's Lane from the east side to the west side of the cemetery in August of 2005, and in 2012, it appeared the vampire had been captured on camera. James Dobbin took a picture 
as he toured the historic Grade 1 listed cemetery. He was taken aback by the image, which appears to show a ghostly figure under a tree. He said, We took a lot of photographs and, reviewing them on my laptop, I noticed what looks like the apparition in the background of the photograph. Today, all of these locations are still affected by continuing spates of psychic activity, the latest having seemingly come to life again in the Flask Public House, while a black-clad figure is again being reported at Highgate Cemetery. There have again been recent reports of a tall black figure seen in Swain's Lane outside the cemetery, and only a few years ago, a lady driving her car up the lane one night saw a tall dark figure about seven feet tall with luminous eyes that suddenly disappeared through the cemetery's wall. A man out walking with his dog had also seen the vampire near the old Roman settlement in Highgate Woods the same month, which abruptly disappeared without trace. Swain's Lane outside the cemetery also has its own weird happenings. Sometime in 1974, a dog walker, on returning to his car in Swain's Lane, found there was a freshly dug up corpse in his car. Bizarrely, the doors were still locked. At the time, there were all sorts of strange rituals being carried out in the cemetery late at night. Now, folks, first and foremost, David Castleton, who writes the Serpent's Pen blog, has been a massive help in preparing for this episode. So there's lots of good information out there on this case, but he had a really good thorough write-up. So, you know, usually I don't go out of my way to thank any certain source, but, you know, I always have links in the show notes. But in this case, uh, you know, I really do appreciate this site and what I read there. So if you want to know more about this, head over there and check it out. Now, Ferrant always said that the vampire myth had been blown out of proportion with the unhelpful influence of the media and that the figure was, in fact, nothing more than your common garden ghost. Hammond High's editor, Jerry Isman, once explained that the paper played the story up for laughs as others began to write in with outlandish claims about the gray figure in the cemetery. So many people's assertion that this was a media-fueled case of hysteria does have at least some basis to it, in fact. The Hammer horror film Dracula AD 1972 was also inspired by the Highgate vampire case. The film, which starred Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, features a group of young hippies who, by participating in an occult ritual in an abandoned cemetery, reawake a vampire. So, some possible explanations and conclusions. It's not surprising that the dilapidated grandeur of the cemetery, with its ivy-entwined Gothic monuments, would generate legends of hauntings and sinister creatures and draw those with an interest in the occult and macabre. As colorful and dramatic as the accounts of Ferrant, and especially Manchester are, there are those of a skeptical turn of mind who feel tempted to question the Highgate vampire narrative. Are there any explanations, social, cultural, or psychological, that could account for the hysteria and bizarre events afflicting North London in the 1960s and 70s? The Highgate vampire was a strange case, but here are some attempts to rationally understand the phenomenon. For Merlin Coverley, the author of The Occult London, which contains a chapter on the Highgate saga, it feels like the story could only have caught fire when it did. The entire period seems to be caught up with the folk horror revival, he says. The key date here is 1973, the year zero of folk horror, in which The Wicker Man was released. He says this also happens to be the year in which the feud between Ferrant and Manchester was at its height, culminating in the supposed magical duel 
that was supposed to take place on Parliament Hill, but never materialized. This was also the decade of the Enfield Poltergeist, another cornerstone of the city's recent paranormal folk history. Considering the weight of the era's neurosis, it's also hardly surprising that Stephen King chose suburban North London as the shape-shifting mouth of hell in his 1980 short story, Crouch End. Vampire legends seem to be associated with times of social upheaval and change. Published in the dying years of the Victorian era, Bram Stoker's Dracula has ancient folklore running up against innovations like railways, telegrams, and phonograms. The exotic immigrant figure of the Count embodies fears linked to colonialism, immigration, and globalization, while frequent references to the new woman reveal anxieties about the emerging feminist movement and changing gender roles. The eroticism of the vampire could be connected to the fact Victorian sexual mores were just starting to loosen. Similar obsessions marked the resurgence of the vampire myth in the 60s and 70s. The 1960s counterculture <clears throat> had unleashed the sexual revolution, and in the 70s such changes were spreading out into wider society. Immigration was an issue as people steamed into England from its ex-colonies, and there were imitations intimations of the tumultuous decade to come with its strikes and class conflict. Class is continually emphasized in Bram Stoker's novel. Increasing unemployment and economic uncertainties would have added to this. Legend tripping is a term used by folklorists and anthropologists to describe a common pattern of behavior in which groups of young people make expeditions to sites associated with horrific, tragic, or supernatural events. These visits, which normally take place at night, can be seen as rites of passage, which enable the youngsters to demonstrate their courage and daring. The sites of such legend trips can include caves, tunnels, abandoned buildings, and especially cemeteries. While most examples of le legend tripping are relatively harmless, some expeditions may involve trespassing, vandalism, and even occult rituals. Both Ferrant and Manchester's entourages were groups of young people led by charismatic young men. While their intentions may have been good, it could be argued that their escapades did include breaking and entering, vandalism, and most, most definitely rituals. And these two groups were not the only ones engaged in legend tripping. There were also hundreds of other vampire hunters and those practicing the black arts. Might one bunch of legend trippers have been in competition with Manchester's group, hiding the vampiric corpse and doing their best to thwart Manchester's attempts to track it down? A related phenomenon is ostentation, which refers to the literal acting out of well-known legends and lore. Such acting out can become a kind of game, in which the borders of fantasy and reality become blurred. It's been noted by many that the Highgate Vampire Saga bears strong resemblances to Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula. In Dracula, the Count mostly attacks young women, and likewise young men, women, Manchester claimed, were those the Highgate vampire chiefly pestered. Bram Stoker's novel also includes sleepwalking victims, coffin vampires being discovered in putrid vaults, and the use of crucifixes, garlic, and holy water to repel such monsters. Other similarities are the vampire's Eastern European origins, his purchase of a fashionable house in the West End, and his red burning eyes. Even Highgate itself features in Dracula, as it's where the aristocrat-made vampire, Lucy Westerna, is entombed. The neo-Gothic mansion is a reasonable stand-in for Dracula's spooky castle, and the Count, like the Highgate vampire, is finally dispatched by a stake through the heart. 
The name Lucy and Lucia is also connected with the secondary infestation in the Great Northern London Cemetery. Like in Dracula, the vampire there, according to Manchester, had trouble crossing running water. In this case, the brook that skirts the graveyard's northern side. Manchester's hunt for the Highgate vampire also bears similarities to the books of horror author Dennis Wheatley. Even the language Manchester uses to describe his adventures has a ring of the gothic novel about it. Manchester has downplayed the similarities of his vampire hunting to works of literature, stating, I certainly haven't encountered anything that can be described as a Byronic figure from a gothic romance. That tradition in fiction has a lot of Byronic input, largely due to John William Polidori's novel, The Vampire. But no, the eyeless sockets of impenetrable darkness I've encountered bear no relation to that glamorized image. Still, it would seem that much of the, of the Highgate vampire mythos could plausibly have been molded by the propensities of local youngsters for legend tripping and ostentation. It's worth pointing out that popular culture at that time was awash with vampire images, which may also have inspired legend tripping escapades. From the turn of the 20th century till the early 1970s, scores of vampire movies were made across the Western world. Between 1958 and 1970, the British-based Hammer Studios alone produced five Dracula films, one of which, I've already mentioned, was shot in Highgate Cemetery. Numerous TV programs and comics also featured vampires. In the 1950s, Glasgow saw a vampire hunt in which hundreds of children invaded the city's southern necropolis in search of a being known as the Gorbals Vampire. This incident was blamed on lurid American horror comics. I'd like to look into that one further, folks. In his 1970 interview, Manchester didn't supply any proof to back up his ideas about the vampire coming from Eastern Europe. He would later state this part of the article was a journalistic embellishment, but in a book he published in 1985, Manchester does mention a foreign nobleman's coffin being brought to Highgate. There, however, appears to be more solid evidence concerning the occult ceremonies Manchester believed were taking place in the graveyard. Ferrant said that in Highgate Cemetery, he often found the discarded remains of satanic rituals, stubs of black candles, satanic markings on the floors of tombs. In one small chapel-like tomb with a marble floor and stained glass windows, he found an inverted pentagram was drawn on the floor. So what are we left with here, folks? Almost certainly this would never have become such a famous incident without the Friday the 13th airing of that TV program in the UK. It just goes to show that when human interest is involved, and in this case TV ratings, greed and selfishness will definitely come to the forefront. I have no doubt that between this and the ongoing coverage in the ham and high, that many of the later cases may have simply been mass hysteria and a matter of people rationalizing shadows and other shapes. However, as often the case, I would say that in so many tales like this, there's probably at its core at least a grain of truth. Much has been mistransposed and repeated over the years in retellings of this tale, and as with any case like this, the further we move on from events, the murkier they become. Over time, the case has become a cult classic and is one of the major and oft-repeated modern stories of vampirism in the Western world. The Highgate Vampire has also made it into comic books, including the Italian Il Vampiro de Highgate and Buffy the Vampire Slayer Series 9. There was, or has been apparently, even a video game under development in which a computerized Bishop Sean Manchester prowls Highgate Cemetery in a quest to impale the graveyard's head vampire. 
There's also a Highgate Cemetery Vampire Appreciation Society. There's a Facebook page, and I've made sure to leave a link for you in the show notes. Sean Manchester gives this advice for would-be vampire hunters. Leave it to those who are proficient in the ministry of exorcism and contact a traditional priest. If you have a calling to become an exorcist, you first need to be trained and become seasoned before embarking on anything as dangerous as the Highgate case. As always, folks, I leave the final verdict to you, my friends, and I hope you have enjoyed listening to this as much as I've enjoyed presenting it for you. Now, folks, don't forget that next week we will be getting into the Moving Coffins of Barbados. And again, I hope that you've enjoyed the Halloween schedule so far. Aside from that, I hope that you have a great week. And as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Talk to you soon, folks.